Welcome to St. Agnes Quick Talks, Episode 4. If you'd like to support this podcast, consider making a donation by visiting churchofstagnes.org. Our next speaker is Dr. Mark Spencer, who is a professor at the University of St. Thomas and also a parishioner at St. Agnes. Today he will be speaking to us about Dietrich von Hildebrand. Pope Benedict XVI had this to say about Dietrich von Hildebrand. When the intellectual history of the Catholic Church in the 20th century is written, the name of Dietrich von Hildebrand will be most prominent among the figures of our time. If you would like to learn more about Dietrich von Hildebrand, visit the Hildebrand Project by going to hildebrandproject.org. Hello, my name is Mark Spencer, and I, my wife Susanna, and our four children are parishioners at St. Agnes. I am also an associate professor of philosophy at the University of St. Thomas. In my philosophical work, I've been influenced a lot by the 20th century German Catholic philosopher Dietrich von Hildebrand, and I am a fellow with the Hildebrand Project, a group that promotes his work. Today, I'd like to introduce you to this great thinker and to some significant aspects of his thought. While I can only describe a few aspects of his life and of his thinking for you today, I hope you'll be inspired to read some of the works of this important Catholic thinker. Dietrich von Hildebrand was born in 1889 in Florence, Italy. His father, Adolf Hildebrand, was a noted Bavarian sculptor who had his studio in Florence, where Dietrich grew up, surrounded by art and high culture. While he did not receive a religious upbringing, he exhibited from an early age a deep reverence for beauty, for the purity and dignity of human persons and the human body, and for moral goodness. Before attending the university at Munich, he discerned a vocation to become a philosopher. He then joined a new school of philosophy that had begun around 1900, known as phenomenology. To understand the intellectual history of the church over the last century, it's important that you understand a bit about phenomenology. It influenced nearly every major Catholic theologian of the last 100 years, including Pope St. John Paul II and St. Edith Stein. At the end of the 19th century, much like today, many intellectuals believed that everything we experience, even things like moral laws and the laws of mathematics and logic, were purely subjective. Others, again much like now, believed that everything is purely material and that law, things like moral laws or the laws of logic are ultimately nothing but processes in the brain. Phenomenology was a movement that responded to these subjectivistic and materialistic schools of thought. It sought to return intellectuals' attention to real things themselves. Phenomenology is a philosophical method for describing precisely how things appear in our experience. Once we set aside unwarranted assumptions, like those that subjectivists and materialists make, phenomenology can help us see how things like moral laws and the laws of logic appear as unchanging, objective, eternal truths. It guides us to see the objective, essential, meaningful structure of everything that we experience. Phenomenology gave Dietrich von Hildebrand a method for helping others experience the essential dignity of persons. 
He also experienced the holiness and beauty of the Mass, the saints, and Christ, especially through the influence of a fellow phenomenologist, Max Scheler, and he thereby became an ardent Catholic. Hildebrand's phenomenology and his Catholicism from that point forward were deeply intertwined. I want to now briefly describe for you two ideas of his which had a big influence on his later life and work. A first central idea of Hildebrand's philosophy is the idea of value, or importance in itself. Throughout his career, Hildebrand really wanted to describe how to grow in the moral and spiritual life. If we're going to really grow morally and spiritually, we need not only to do the right things, we need to do them with the right motivations. Using the phenomenological method, Hildebrand devoted the bulk of several books, beginning with his doctoral dissertation, to describing the fundamental ways that human persons are motivated in their actions. Sometimes we are motivated by a desire to be subjectively satisfied without any thought for what is good for us or right for us to do. At other, better times, we are motivated by what is objectively good for us, that is, by what will fulfill our needs or our nature. But Hildebrand argued that while we should pursue what is objectively good for us, and while we certainly should not do what is objectively bad for us, people, including many Catholics, often focus too much on pursuing their own happiness or fulfillment. We cannot become as fulfilled as possible if we just focus on our own objective fulfillment. Rather, we need to be motivated in a third way, in addition to being motivated by subjective satisfaction and objective goods. As we go about the world, we perceive that some things have value or are important in themselves. When I see a beautiful artwork or landscape, it calls for admiration and awe. Admiration and awe are due to it. If I fail to have these responses, I have not given the beautiful object what is due to it. If I don't take my attention off myself and devote my attention to the beautiful object, I have done something unjust. If I just look at the beautiful artwork or landscape as something that fulfills my need for beauty or fulfills my nature, I have failed to give the artwork or landscape itself its due. If we are looking at the world virtuously, we just grasp that some things have value and so ought to be responded to in a particular way. Paradoxically, I can only become fully happy by responding to valuable things for their own sake, not by focusing on pursuing my own happiness. I have mentioned already one way in which, according to Hildebrand, we experience something as important in itself and as calling for a certain response. Beauty calls for admiration and awe. But Hildebrand describes many kinds of values that call for many different kinds of responses moral values like courage, justice, and dignity, other aesthetic values besides beauty like elegance and comedy, and above all, religious values like holiness. When we perceive many of these values, we find ourselves called not just to respond by performing certain acts, 
like imitating the courageous or just acts that we see others doing. Rather, we find that part of the best response to certain values is to have the right kinds of feelings. This brings us to the central, second central aspect of Hildebrand's philosophy. Hildebrand noticed that when Western philosophers, including many Catholics, describe what is distinctive about human persons, we often just focus on intellect and free will. Human persons can think, and we can make free choices. But Hildebrand argued that the heart, our ability to feel certain feelings, is just as important to our personhood as intellect and will. Not all of our feelings are irrational, animalistic passions that must be controlled by, by thinking. Rather, many of our feelings are meaningful, just responses to the valuable things and persons we encounter. When I encounter a beautiful painting, I ought to feel awe. When I encounter my wife, I ought to feel attraction and love. When I encounter God in the liturgy, I ought to feel devotion and reverence. If I just choose to perform loving actions towards my wife and God, but I feel nothing for them, then I have failed to respond to them as a whole person. I am not yet entirely giving them their due response. The moral and spiritual life must involve training our perception so that we see the objective values in things, and then training our feelings so that they respond virtuously to the values we encounter. If you're interested in reading more about these philosophical ideas from Hildebrand, I would recommend three books. First, Ethics. Second, The Heart. And third, Aesthetics, all of which are still in print. If you'd like to see these ideas applied to the spiritual life, I above all recommend his book, Transformation in Christ, which in my opinion is one of the spiritual classics of the 20th century. And if you'd like to see these ideas applied very practically to ordinary human life, I recommend his book, The Art of Living, which he wrote with his second wife, Alice von Hildebrand. But Hildebrand also put these teachings on value and the heart into practice in many areas of his own life. First, Hildebrand had a deep commitment to the virtue of purity. The pure, chaste person does not just perform chaste actions towards others and refrain from unchaste actions. Rather, the pure, chaste person is one who really perceives the great value of persons, of human bodies, and of the marital act, and is moved to feelings of deep reverence and awe for these things, and a horror for their violation. These feelings imbue the pure person's every bodily act with authentic reverence for others. Hildebrand came to these views on purity and sexuality from an early age, even before his conversion. In his early work, In Defense of Purity, which I highly recommend, he anticipated St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. This focus on purity continued throughout his career. For example, he was one of the first Catholic intellectuals to write a book-length defense of Humanae Vitae within a year of that encyclical's publication. Second, Hildebrand was passionately committed to defending the dignity of every human person. After receiving his doctorate under the direction of the founder of phenomenology, Edmund Husserl, 
Hildebrand received a comfortable teaching position at Munich. But when Adolf Hitler attempted his first coup in 1923, Hildebrand saw clearly what a threat National Socialism posed to the dignity of persons. And the Nazis saw how much of a threat Hildebrand's philosophy was to their worldview. Hildebrand was forced to flee Bavaria in 1923, but since that coup attempt by the Nazis failed, he was able to quickly return. When Hitler came to power in Germany in the early 30s, Hildebrand again had to leave. He made his way via Italy to Austria, where the Chancellor, Engelbert Dollfuss, was attempting to build a state based on Catholic social teaching. At great cost to his own finances and personal safety, Hildebrand published a magazine, Der Christliche Stendistat, defending the Catholic view of the value of persons and opposing every dehumanizing ideology, Nazi and communist. When the Anschluss occurred, Hildebrand's name was the first on the Gestapo's hit list after the members of the Austrian government. He was only able to get out of the country just in time. In fact, he was crossing the border into Czechoslovakia as the Gestapo raided his apartment in Vienna. Then, by way of France, Portugal, and Brazil, he made his way to the United States, where he taught at Fordham University in New York and continued his work of defending the value of human life up until his death. The gripping story of his anti-Nazi work and escape from Austria can be found in the book My Battle Against Hitler. Finally, Hildebrand's commitment to value and to the heart led him to have a deep love for reverent, beautiful liturgy. With the changes brought about after the Second Vatican Council, Hildebrand became a strong defender of the traditional Mass for its beauty and its great power in inculcating reverence as a due response to the transcendent God, awe as a due response to that which is mysterious and not every day, and piety as a due response to the, to the traditions handed down by the saints. He worked for the preservation of the traditional Mass, but also defended a reading of the texts of the Second Vatican Council in line with what has come to be known as the hermeneutic of continuity. In all that he did, he sought to show himself as a true son of the church, responding well to the full depth of value that he found there, just as he sought to respond to value in all things.